Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the truths that we have witnessed and seen and sung this morning. That when all around our souls gives way, then you are all our hope and all our stay. So that we can honestly say, we can sincerely say that Christ is our solid rock, we stand on him, and everything else is just sinking sand. So this morning, Lord, I pray that through the word preached, the word read, through the prayers that we've made, the songs that we've sung together, through witnessing and celebrating baptism later in this service, God, you would make that statement more true of us than it was when we arrived here this morning. We would be more conscious of the security and the stability that we have in Christ. God, accomplish these things this morning through your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. So here at Emmanuel Church, Alex DePrima, who is our regular preaching pastor, he's currently in a series on Matthew. I've had the opportunity since about September to be in a series on Philippians. So two sort of concurrent series happened at the same time. So Alex is in Matthew, and whenever I preach, we're in the book of Philippians. This will be our fourth sermon in the book of Philippians, and in it, we will finish up Philippians chapter 1. So we're going to finish Philippians chapter 1 this morning. We'll be on the cusp of Philippians 2. Many of you will recognize some of the opening verses of Philippians chapter 2. If you were in Equip this morning, that was actually mentioned in Equip class. Uh, Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord with one another. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Very familiar passage for... Christians, that's Philippians 2. This morning's text, at the end of Philippians 1, flows right into that text, seamlessly. So don't read that chapter division as a break in thought, but think of this as sort of the opening of the text that we're going to see in the coming weeks in Philippians 2. So this morning's text is going to be Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In seminary, so I had the opportunity to uh, attend uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In seminary, you take a homiletics class. It may sound like a really fancy word. It's just a preaching class. I don't really know why they call it homiletics. It's just a preaching class. Um, I did seminary online, fully online. So an online interactive preaching class was an interesting experience, one that I can't say was all that helpful. Um, They teach you to approach a text, and this part's good. I'm just saying the online part of it was a bit of a struggle. But they they teach you to approach a text of Scripture when you're going to preach, and you need to make a textual outline. Okay, So you need to outline the the components of the text, how they relate to one another. You know, this sort of fits under this, this flows from this, this is a separate point. And it sort of takes all the, uh, the component parts of the text and helps you to make sense of how they fit together with one another. So you get that textual outline in place. Then later in the process, you come up with another outline, a homiletical outline a preaching outline, so a sermon outline. So this is the text as it is. This is the text as you're going to preach it. Now, hopefully, there's a lot of overlap between those two outlines, uh, but they're often different from one another, which is, that's fine, that's good, Uh, because the main point of the text needs to be the main point of your sermon. And so because you have limited time, you have to focus on certain parts of that outline and really hammer those and other parts are more peripheral, and that's okay. 
but hopefully, again, there's a lot of overlap between the textual outline and the sermon outline. This morning, if you were to have a good textual outline of this passage, verses 27 through 30, and you wanted to get to my sermon outline, uh, you could do that by just flipping the text outline upside down. Okay, so this morning, the way we're going to organize our, our, our treatment of this text is backwards. So we're going to kind of start at the end and then go to the beginning. Now, why would we do that? Well, if you look at the text, I think it's obvious. Uh, look at verse 27. We start off the text, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's sort of our main salvo, our clarion call of this text. And it's right there at the beginning. Right? So uh, we're going to start at the end so that we can give proper emphasis to what I think is the most emphasized thing in this passage, which is living a life worthy of the gospel. So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to have four points. First point, we're going to kind of start at the end of the text and talk about Paul's conflict. So Paul's ongoing conflict. Number two, moving up the text, we'll talk about the suffering of the saints, so Christian suffering. Number three, a sign to the world. And then number four, living worthy of the gospel. So we're finishing up right where the text starts. And hopefully that will serve as a good exclamation point for this text. So let's start with verse 30. Look where this, look where this text ends. And if you have a Bible device, keep that open in front of you because we're going to be referring back to that pretty frequently. So verse 30, Paul says, I'll give a little context here. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know, this gives us a, a nice opportunity to sort of review and recap some of the things that we've seen in this letter already. So the book is a letter from Paul, so that's the I in this text, to the Philippians, the, the saints who live in Philippi. So it's a church in the city of Philippi in the first century. Paul's writing to them in this letter. These saints are very dear to Paul. We've seen that already in chapter 1. Paul is equally dear to them. Uh, they have supported Paul financially. They've given him all sorts of support, even when no other churches supported him. The people at Philippi were people that he could count on for support. He was the first to bring them the gospel. Uh, remember, in, earlier in chapter 1, he, he calls them fellow partakers of grace with him. Partners in the gospel. So that's how he views these people at the church at Philippi. And we see an allusion to his experience with them in this text. So in verse 30, he says that they are engaged in the same conflict that they saw he had. Now, what does that mean? What's that referring to? Well, they saw him have conflict. And if you look back in the book of Acts, which details Paul's journeys in the first century, he's going from city to city and taking the gospel to different places. Uh, we see that conflict. So in Acts 16, there's an uproar in the city of Philippi when Paul and Silas show up. They're eventually thrown in prison because of their witness to Christ and the gospel. And then once they're delivered from prison, they're you know, coaxed out of the city by the authorities there. So these people saw Paul in prison. We brought up at the beginning of this book that the Philippian jailer, right, popular story. Paul and Silas are singing in the prison cell late into the night. Uh, mysterious rumbling occurs. The, the doors are open. The locks are released. The Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he lost all these prisoners. But then Paul and Silas say, hey, we're still here. Given the gospel, he and his family are converted and baptized and added to the church. That jailer who oversaw them in jail, when they're sitting there in shackles, uh, he saw Paul have that conflict, right? And he's presumably hearing, reading this letter. So these saints saw Paul in conflict, in prison. And then he says, and you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So they saw him have conflict, and now they've heard that he still has conflict of the same sort. So what does that mean? Well, he's writing this from prison. Uh, Paul is in prison, presumably in Rome, writing to the church at Philippi because they've sent him, a, 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 a member of their church, Epaphroditus. They've sent support and, and good tidings and greetings to Paul from Epaphroditus, and now Paul is sending back this letter to them. So th this conflict that he's still having that they've now heard about that's really the, the, the whole reason for this letter. They've heard that he's in conflict, and they've reached out to him. They want to know how he's doing. They love Paul. They hear he's in prison. They don't know if he's dead or alive, presumably. And then uh, Paul is writing this letter 
to give them an update on the suffering that he still has, the conflict that he's still engaged in. So Paul says, You all watched me suffer firsthand when I was with you. So when I brought the gospel to you. You've heard that I'm engaged in the same sort of suffering now. And he's reminding them of this. Why? Well, because apparently Christ has granted to them the same sort of suffering. Which brings us to our second point, that the suffering of the saints. So we've seen Paul's conflict. Second point, the suffering of the saints. So let's go back to our text. Starting at verse 28. You're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now here that I still have. So Paul's telling them, listen, you're now engaged in the same kind of conflict you saw that I had. And this, the suffering, this conflict, has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Now, first of all, it's necessary to make sort of a, a distinction here. We've made this distinction already in this series, but it's good to highlight it again. There's a distinction between sort of general suffering and suffering that's distinctly Christian. All right, so general suffering, what do we mean? Well, this is the suffering that all humankind experiences, believer and unbeliever alike. Sickness, loss, death. You don't have to be a Christian to experience these things. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. So that's sort of general suffering. And doesn't seem to be what's in Paul's mind in this text. What Paul has in mind seems to be a distinctly Christian suffering. What do we mean by that? What constitutes distinctly Christian suffering? Let's look back at our text. I think it's doubly plain there. Look back at the text. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you don't just believe in him, but you also suffer for his sake. You see that? A, sort of a double emphasis here on why this suffering is coming upon them. It's not just by virtue of them being humans in a fallen world. This suffering is falling upon them because of Christ. Their suffering is directly related to their allegiance for Christ. So this isn't just the kind of suffering that all mankind faces. I think what we're dealing with here is distinctly Christian suffering. You may call it persecution. If it wasn't for your allegiance to Christ, this would not be happening to you. And if you denied Christ right now, presumably it would just stop. But you've suffered and continue to suffer because you're, uh, you're allied to Christ. One other observation I want to make on this suffering here. Let's consider what this kind of suffering looks like that Paul's referring to. Well, of course, there's like physical persecution. Right? The violence torture, imprisonment that have sort of followed God's people around since the days of the apostles. However, what about you? Here, this morning, in a fairly comfortable, in a nice building, I'm not overly concerned that governing authorities are going to march through the doors with guns and file us out of here. Uh, a lot of Christians in the world don't have that luxury, but we do. So how do we think about persecution? I mean, we're not in prison for the sake of the gospel right now. I assume none of your lives are under threat this morning because of your allegiance to Christ. Your wages aren't being garnished at your job, I assume, because of your loyalty to Jesus. Now, this is where a lot of preachers would make the observation that, well, we in America, we don't have any idea what persecution is. Us here this morning in our church building, no fear of people marching in the door, we just don't understand persecution. I don't think that's true. Because the Bible doesn't talk like that. You, you shouldn't think that because you're not sitting in a North Korean jail for the sake of the gospel, uh, that you have no opportunity to suffer faithfully in the manner that's being described in this text. Because you do. Uh, some of you might remember, we spoke about this at length when we did a series in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book about Christian suffering. So if you have like a study Bible and you open to 1 Peter, and you look at the front matter of that study Bible, and it has something about like the main idea or the theme of 1 Peter, it's going to mention suffering or persecution. It's what 1 Peter is about. And do you know how Peter characterizes suffering in that book? Throughout that book, 
Let me tell you. Listen to Peter and see if you can spot a pattern in the type of persecution that he's talking about. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Fiery trial. This is real deal persecution. And you know what he specifically mentions? Not a verse later. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Fiery trial. Insulted for Christ. Okay, let's keep reading. Peter warns them that the world around them will, quote, speak against them as evildoers. Or also, when he's urging Christians to look at Christ's suffering as an example of how they should suffer, he says, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So if you want to talk about like the extent of intense physical persecution, I mean, we obviously need to look no further than Jesus. But it's not lost on Peter that there's a, there's a verbal element to Jesus' suffering that's significant, significant enough to, to highlight here, right? Uh, Peter says when Jesus was reviled, when he was mocked, uh, he didn't revile in return. He did not threaten when he was threatened. So think of that. The Son of God mocked, jeered, slandered. In other places, Peter characterizes their suffering as being, quote, slandered and, quote, reviled. Words that he uses to describe Christ's suffering. He notes that God's people will be, quote, maligned for their good behavior. Now that's Peter. All of that's coming from 1 Peter. The, the, the treatise on Christian suffering. And what's he highlighting? When you're insulted for Christ's sake. You're maligned for Christ's sake. You're slandered. You're threatened for Christ's sake. All of these things apply under the biblical umbrella of what we see as suffering or persecution for the sake of Christ. Uh, let's think about Jesus' own words. Uh, right now I said Alex is in a sermon series on Matthew. We're at the cusp of the Sermon on the Mount right now. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Christian, this morning, all of this should illustrate for you. When you approach texts like this, about suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel, understand that being persecuted as a Christian includes your neighbor calling you a bigot. It includes people at work avoiding you because you're religious. It includes every major cultural institution today insisting that you're a deluded, hate-mongering moron because you believe in Jesus. So when family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors mock you, slander you, treat you like the resident crazy person because of Christ and your allegiance to him, Jesus isn't going to minimize that. He's not going to deny comfort to you because you need to man up. That's not real persecution. It's not how the Bible talks about suffering. It's not how the Bible talks about persecution. On the contrary, Jesus calls that suffering like he suffered. The Bible calls that fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And he says you're blessed because of it. Now those are observations outside of this text. Um, but one more observation that we need to make comes directly from the text. There's one word here that's very surprising. I wonder if it struck your ear when we read the text. Let me read the verse again. See if there's a word here that's just surprising to you. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I wonder if you catch the word there. Really? Granted? I, mean, I don't know about you. When I think of being, something being granted... I think of a, a great gift. Something is bestowed upon you. Uh, a request is granted. Uh, well, what's granted in this text? What is gifted? What is bestowed? I wonder if you know. Let's read it again. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
So this is what's striking. The suffering is granted, gifted. It's even more striking, I think, in the Greek. So the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So when Paul sat down to write this letter to the, to the Philippians, he wrote it originally in Greek. So what we have here is an English translation from the Greek. So sometimes going back and seeing what Greek words were used, did Paul ever use this word elsewhere? Did he use this word anywhere else in the book? How is this word used outside of the, the New Testament in this time period? Those things can lend some clarity when we're looking at a text in the New Testament. So the Greek word here for granted is closely associated with the word grace. So, I'm gonna, so the word is ekaristhe. Ekaristhe. Now the Greek word for grace is charis. Think, think like C-H-R-I-S, like charity or charitable, uh, something like that. Ekaristhe. Word for grace is charis. You hear it right there in the middle of the word. Just a prefix and a suffix attached to it. Uh, Ekariste, this comes through with the way that other New Testament authors use this. In Luke 7, Luke uses a, a, another form of this exact word. And he uses it in this context. Luke says of Jesus, To many that were blind, he granted, bestowed, gifted, gave sight. He had grace upon them and gave them, bestowed upon them, sight. This is the word that Paul uses when he says that suffering is granted by Christ, for Christ, to Christians. So think of it, all the different types of suffering we discussed a moment ago. Slander, maligning, threatening, even physical types of persecution. Christ grants those. Christ grants loss of friendships. For his sake. Christ grants strained family relationships, provided that they're strained because of him. Christ graciously gives slander against you. Again, provided that you're being falsely maligned. If people don't like you just because you're a jerk or you're belligerent, don't say, oh, I'm being persecuted. Uh, Christ has given this to me. No, this is suffering for his sake. Jesus says in the text I read from the Sermon on the Mount, Bless you when people revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. You're not being persecuted if people are speaking all manner of evil against you truly. But if these things are being done because of Christ and for his sake, then they must be counted as gifts from his hand. Now how can this be? How are these things gifts? Well, our text doesn't say. Paul just puts that out there. But what did Christ say earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you, for your reward is great in heaven. If for the sake of Christ you lose a friendship, you gain everlasting treasure because of that. And that treasure is given to you by Christ. Paul himself will say in just a couple chapters that for the sake of Christ, he will gladly suffer the loss of all things as long as he can know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It's another benefit we get from suffering. Christ is close to his people when they suffer as he suffered. One way the Bible puts this is when we go and join him outside of the city where he's suffering, uh, we gain closeness to him in that. There's an intimate fellowship that awaits you, Christian, if you suffer as your Lord suffered. We see the apostles acting this way in the book of Acts. When the apostles are taken before the council and charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus and they're beaten, what do they do when they leave? They rejoice. They worship. Why? Let's read it. Acts 5. They, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. So, Christ grants, gifts, bestows this type of suffering to his people. And if you struggle to believe that, if you're suffering now, it's hard to believe that Christ is giving me this? My, my son won't talk to me? And that's a gift from Christ who loves me? 
that's hard for you to believe, trust him. What more can he do to earn your trust? You call him your master, trust him. So the saints suffer. So we saw Paul's conflict, both then and now. So the suffering of the saints, three, assigned to the world. Let's go back to our text. I'm going to start from the beginning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Listen to this. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So what is it that is a sign? To whom is it a sign, and of what is it a sign? You follow me there? Like, there's a sign. We get that from the text. Okay, who's supposed to be seeing the sign? What is it a sign of, and what is it that is the sign? Well, it's clear from the text that the sign is suffering and their successful response to suffering. So they're suffering faithfully for the sake of the gospel. That's a sign. To whom? Well, not a sign to them. Uh, reading a lot of commentary on, the, on this, this text, a lot of people interpret it as like, oh, this is a sign to believers uh, and to unbelievers. Uh, the, the text is clear. This sign is a sign to the unbelieving world. Right? Look what he says. You're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and a sign to them of your salvation. So the sign is to the unbelieving world, but not even just unbelievers in general. Look at what the text says. It's a sign to whom? Their opponents. So it says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. Sign to who? To the opponents. So not just unbelievers, but the very ones who are causing the suffering of these saints are the ones who are forced to become observers of the glory of the gospel on display. Right? The very people who are opposing these Christians are forced to have that persecution become a sign to them. Now, the same thing is true of us. Uh, your opponents, people that malign you, slander you, are forced to learn something from your faithful suffering. Now, you don't ask for these sorts of situations to come upon you, right? Like, we're not going seeking out people to slander us. But if you live faithfully as a Christian in an unbelieving world, it's going to happen. It may happen on the grand scale, you may hear it on the news, or it may happen in your neighborhood or in your house. You don't go looking for tension among your family members or hostility from that guy at work. On the contrary, we're commanded to live peaceably as far as it relies on us with everyone. But, brother, sister, even if you don't go looking for this sort of trouble, when it finds you, your reaction matters. Because your faithfulness, your steadfastness in those circumstances is supposed to be, intended by God to be, a sign to your opponents. Well, a sign of what? Well, according to Paul, the opponents of the saints in Philippi will be confronted with a reality about themselves and about the saints that they're persecuting. So let's look at the text again. This is a clear sign, a clear sign, not just a sign, it's clear. A clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation. So it's a sign, an omen, a token, an indication of something yet to come. Christian, your faithfulness against all adversaries is a clear, unmistakable sign to them of their destruction. Hence the rage. Hence the anger. Hence the slander. Um, your faithfulness takes away any real opportunity to accuse you. Again, provided that you're faithful. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson says it this way. 
quote, God has his people endure sufferings for his sake so that he may put a padlock on the lying lips of wicked men. God has his saints suffer for his sake. Why? So that he can shut the mouths, the lying mouths of wicked people that would slander you and accuse you falsely. If your great enemy, the devil, finds his primary role as an accuser of the brethren, why would not the wicked world follow suit? And what does your suffering allow you to do? Shut them up. To padlock the lying lips of wicked men. Now, in place, like I said, of genuine reasons to accuse you, there's often instead rage, anger. Uh, why is it that the Jewish council couldn't just leave Stephen alone? Right? Why, why couldn't the Jewish council leave the apostles alone? Why couldn't the crowds in Jerusalem just take Barabbas instead of Jesus? Because that's not what mobs do. If you've got a group that's committed to doing what is wrong and what is evil, and one among them who's committed to acting righteously, what's going to happen? Coercion? Scorn? Ridicule? Exile? These are the tools on the table. Why? Well, Proverbs says, quote, one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Your righteousness is an abomination to those who are unrighteous. Again, provided that you're suffering for Christ's sake and not for your own foolishness. If that is the case, then Paul's message to you, you're suffering faithfully for the sake of Christ. Paul's message to you is they hate you because you're God's instrument to reveal their depravity. You are light shining in dark places, and darkness doesn't want to be found out. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone who slanders you is going to see your good behavior and your faithfulness and become a Christian. In fact, it may make them hate you more. Abel's faithfulness did not motivate Cain towards obedience, right? Stephen's perseverance in the face of suffering did not cause the Jewish council to relent. His faithfulness drove them to manic rage. They rushed him to stone him. But their response is not in your hands or in your job description. Though God may use your steadfastness to bring conversion, that's not your job. What's been ordered of you? Faithfulness. Steadfastness. You just stand your ground. The body they may kill God's truth abideth still. The rest is up to the Lord. Paul says as much when he affirms that all this comes from God. What does he say? They're, you're not frightened in anything by your opponents in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And the commentators are actually pretty unified on this, that that isn't just referring to the destruction, but just referring to the salvation. That that is referring to the whole kit and caboodle. The whole thing. All this is under God's superintending hand. None of this is happening to you accidentally. All of it is happening inside God's supervision. It's measured out by the loving hand of your own Father. What a comfort. Finally, point four, living worthy of the gospel. Okay, so we've worked from the, the end of the text up through each point. So now we're at verse 27, which there's a lot in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and then beginning of verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now a statement like this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, this is a wonderful example of why it's really important to consider context when we read the Bible. If you or I were to just read this statement without any surrounding context, it would just sound like a, like a general call to holy living. Right? So if you just saw on, a, on like a, a coffee mug or a t-shirt, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that would probably do something in you to say, okay, I need to, you know, all the parts of my life, I need to be living in holiness and righteousness. I need to you know, put away sin and be righteous. 
that's all good and that's all right. But if we look at this statement in its context, it has a little bit of a different shade to it. And that's important. The, the Holy Spirit places specific commands, specific promises, specific warnings, specific exhortations within specific contexts for specific reasons. Right? So it's like a, a beautiful diamond, but it's placed in just the right setting with just the right band to, to properly complement and bring out specific elements of its beauty. It's how we should treat the Bible. So in what context do we find this command? When Paul tells the Philippians to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he describes exactly what he has in mind. Right? Let's read it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That, okay, so he's saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that I can hear you're behaving this way. So this is what he means when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So what do we have in mind here? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ means remain steadfast next to your Christian brothers and sisters in the face of persecution. So how do we live in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Well, he tells us. You've got two elements that I think are just on clear display here. You've got unity and you've got courage. You've got steadfastness and you've got solidarity. Now, initially, it seemed best to kind of deal with those two separate things. But the text doesn't lay them out as two separate things. Be unified, be courageous. Let's read this verse again. Look at the text. Take note of elements of unity that you see and elements of courage that you see. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Listen. That you are standing firm, courage, in one spirit, unity, with one mind, unity, striving, courage, side by side, unity, for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened courage in anything by your opponents. So the text doesn't lay these things out as two separate things. It, it alloys together courage and unity. Right? You've got iron, strong. You've got carbon. You, you alloy those things together. You've got carbon steel. A thousand times stronger than the iron that you had before. Right? So you've got the steadfastness, the courage that comes with being a Christian. Great. Iron strength. Alloy in the carbon of Christian unity in what do you have? You've got steel. Now you've got courage in a context. You've got steadfastness with locked arms on either side. That'll keep you from falling away. Right? You start to lose heart. What happens? Hey, hold the line. What's, what's wrong? Get back up here. Jesus does this for us. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. In that line with us is our Lord. So when, when we're looking at this command to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, this is what's coloring it. Not just general righteousness, general holiness. Be steadfast in persecution side by side with the people next to you. Now, next time we're in Philippians, we're going into Philippians 2. And like we've mentioned before, Philippians 2 has all these wonderful pictures of Christian unity. Humility and unity and love in the body of Christ. So you might think, okay, let's wait and really you know, ring the bell of unity when we get to Philippians 2. We're going to pass over that now. Maybe just talk about courage and steadfastness now. Leave unity and harmony for Philippians 2. I don't think so. Here's why. In the text that we read, and in Philippians 2, you see some overlap for sure. Let's listen again to Philippians 1.27. That I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, now look down a little bit to Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2, verse 2. Listen to any similarities here. 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? It sounds like he's just kind of repeating himself, saying the same things. But again, what we have here is specific little shades of Christian unity that are being highlighted here. Because look where Paul goes next in chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in chapter 2, Paul is hammering this point of unity. One mind, full accord, but it's focused on humility. You know, don't count your brothers and sisters as rivals. Don't let your ambition get in the way of Christian unity. Don't be so self-centered that you're missing the, uh, the things that your brothers and sisters need. And that's not exactly what we have in our text, is it? Even though that single-mindedness, single spirit, you know, that kind of stuff is overlapping, what we have in our text is a little bit different. Paul is using similar language to talk about a little bit of a different kind of unity. I want to hear about you that you're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So in our text, Paul's not warning about self-interest, conceit from within the body. He's warning against cowardice within the body. He's warning against falling away, not being steadfast. He wants to hear that they're standing firm, not that they've shrunk back. So the sort of unity that he's describing here, this is, I mean, this is camaraderie and combat, right? This isn't a father telling his children they need to get along and play nice with each other. Uh, this is a general telling his soldiers to hold the line. Both are unity. Dad wants unity at home. The general wants unity on the battlefield. You want unity on the playground and the battleground, Right? But they're different kinds of unity. And what we have here is unity in combat. Unity under persecution. But on the positive side, what a, what a wonderful vision this does provide us for Christian community. In a hostile context, in which people will hate you, malign you for your devotion to Jesus, Christ has given you built-in support. The people around you right now, Christian, to your left, to your right, behind you, in front of you, they're a gift to you from Christ. They're the cavalry. They're there to help you, aid you, rescue you, stabilize you, make sure your feet stay sure and you don't lose your footing in the face of coming pressure. Emmanuel Church, I just, I just hope this describes us. And I think it does. I think that God has been so kind to this church in a multitude of ways. But one of the most pronounced gifts that I think God has given this church is just a, a stunning measure of unity, like-mindedness. We seem to have one mind on particularly important issues. And that's important because the world has become a, an increasingly sort of hostile, divisive place. And that has spelled out trouble for a lot of Christians. A lot of churches have split in the past few years over some very rancorous issues. And that just hasn't been the case here. Praise God. Because the implication from Paul here is that sort of division, it weakens you when things get tough. Causes you to shrink back. You can't strive side by side if you're not of one mind when it comes to the gospel. It's being of one mind, being of one spirit that increases our courage. We're steadfast, we're courageous, we're standing firm, but we're doing so next to our brothers and sisters who share that courage with us. And I hope that that's true of us here at Emmanuel. So my charge to you this morning is Paul's charge to you this morning. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now what this doesn't mean, I just want to highlight this, if you're a non-Christian, you're listening to this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This isn't the Bible or Christ or me telling you, you need to clean yourself up so you're worthy to become a Christian. It's not what this means at all. The context makes that clear. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. If you think you're worthy of the gospel as an unbeliever, sorry. You got no chance of becoming a believer. Recognizing, acknowledging your unworthiness is like gospel 101. Everyone here that's a Christian has acknowledged, I am not worthy of the gifts that I receive from Christ. 
The reason we have a prayer of confession here every week is because everyone around you affirms, I am a sinner, not worthy of the gospel. There's a lot that could be said about this, uh, this phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Uh, I'll say briefly, the Greek is important here too. Uh, the Greek word for let your manner of life be is one word. Uh, it's politeuiste. Uh, all I want you to hear is the first part, polit. Think politic. Polis, city. Indianapolis, a metropolis, right? That's where we get our word for uh, polis, police, comes from that. In other versions, it could be translated conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, or something similar. It's a very interesting, it's a very uncommon word. If you have an ESV at least, other versions may have this as well, you probably have a footnote on that, on that word, right? So at the bottom of the page, there may be a footnote that says something like, um, be a worthy citizen, or something like that. So uh, every single commentator across the board makes a very big deal of this word. For two reasons. Number one, Paul usually has a word that he uses when he says, conduct yourselves in this way, act this way, do these sorts of things. He has a little arsenal of words that he likes to use, and this ain't one of them. This one's very unique for Paul to use. And it has this idea of being a citizen, uh, being a good representative of your fatherland. Uh, people draw attention to what Paul says in Philippians 3. You don't have to turn there. But Paul says, just a couple chapters from here, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is the noun form of the same word. Your citizenship is in heaven. So Philippi, it's a Roman province. They're very, apparently very proud to be a Roman province. It's a big deal with Roman citizenship in Philippi, which actually explains when, they, when Paul was released from prison, they wanted to really throw the book at him but then he reveals to them what? That he's a Roman citizen. So then what do they do? They politely and kindly ask him to leave. They don't want any more trouble from him. They don't want to get in trouble because this guy's a Roman citizen. We don't want to do anything that would jeopardize our, our status as a Roman colony here in Philippi. So he's speaking to them in a, in a way that very much makes sense to where they're at. So for us, what does this mean? It means be a good heavenly citizen. You're not a citizen here. You don't belong here. Let your public life evidence that you belong to a different kingdom you have a different king and he gives you orders and you follow them you're loyal to him and you lock arms with your fellow countrymen while you live here in exile one commentator noted this as philippi was a colony of rome in macedonia so the church was a little colony of heaven in philippi Right, so as Philippi is a colony of Rome in this foreign land, so this place, Emmanuel Church, should be a little colony of heaven. We act the same. Why? Because we're from the same place. We speak the same language. We have the same master. We're fellow citizens together. And so we suffer well together. You have a responsibility to the collective in this room and not to yourself. As individual Americans, that can kind of have a bad taste for us. Collectivism, no, America is a very individualistic sort of place. We go west, give us our acreage, and we're going out there. But this is not forced homogeneity. This isn't like coercion. You're all going to be the same and act the same. No, this is an external manifestation of a unity that actually exists among each one of us that are Christian. We're united to one another by means of our union with Christ. We all are members of one body with one head. So what does that mean? This isn't forced coercion. If we act the same, talk the same, like be the same towards one another, uh, if, there, if there's a, a strange, even though we have different backgrounds and personalities and, and all sorts of different things about us, if there's that thread of unity that runs among us, it's because there really is unity among each and every one of us in Christ. These are external manifestations of a real, thriving, vibrant, inward reality. Christian, with each and every true Christian that's around you, you share a connection that is worlds deeper than you share with any fellow American. These are your fellow countrymen. So act like it, is what Paul's saying. 
I'll finish by looking at just one more word. The last thing I'll say will be the first word of the text. Only. Paul begins this section with the word only. Do this one thing. Please note this. Some translations render it those ways. One translation has, the important thing is this. So when Paul opens a, a section with this word, he's taking out a big highlighter and just marking it up. Pay attention. Do this one thing. So brothers, sisters, let me just say, trials are coming. Read the signs of the times. Things are going a specific direction. Trials are now here. May your faith, when it is tested, be found genuine. May our faith as a body, when it is tested, come forth like gold. And do this one thing. Remember, there is a connection between your manner of life and the gospel of Christ. So, brother, sister, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Seek to enrich the solidarity and unity that you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And by so doing, plant your feet firm in the ground of the gospel so that when the storms come and the winds blow, the house of Christ's church still stands. Let's pray. God, we are sinners. We don't hide that. We acknowledge it openly. We are prone to self-centeredness and self-interestedness. We want leisure. We want ease. We want comfort. Lord, that's not what you've called us to. Lord, we want, above all of those things, to experience something of this unity, this single-mindedness, this one spirit you've described here in your word. God, make these things true about Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. God, let each and every saint that is here feel in a marked way the, the, the unity and camaraderie that exists by virtue of our union with your Son. God, please, let these things be true of Emmanuel Church. When trials come, we don't want to fear. God, we want to stand firm. We want to hold fast side by side with one another. Give us courage. Give us unity. God, pour these things out on this congregation unmixed. Give us the blessings of these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.